Lord Jesus, we come to you so grateful this morning that you have demonstrated such kindness to sinners like us. And Lord, we know that your kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. It's meant to assure us of our our forgiveness as those who trust in your work on the cross. Lord, this room is full of people who have run to you, who have come to you and experienced so much kindness, so much grace, and for that we give thanks. And Lord, there may be some here today who are running not to you, but from you. I pray today that they would recognize the kindness, the love, the grace that you have demonstrated, and that they would place their faith and trust in you and experience your goodness as you pour out forgiveness and life and salvation upon them. Lord, in your kindness, we pray that you would open our hearts to your word this morning, that you would give us insight, help us to understand. Pray that we would be able to put aside the distractions and the discouragements of life and to focus on you and to see your glory displayed in the word. We pray for your help to this end, and we pray, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 3 this morning. As we continue our study through Luke's gospel, it's important that we understand who Jesus is. That's an understatement. I could probably say it multiple times in a row. It is important that we understand who Jesus is. We've heard the statement so often, if you've been around church, if you've read the Bible at all, if you know anything about Christianity, you've heard it said that Jesus is the Son of God. And we've heard that statement, we've heard that phrase so often it's potentially easy for us to just gloss right over it. There's a, a potentially a failure on our part to ponder and to appreciate the depth of meaning that that title holds, that Jesus is the Son of God. Yet that truth of Christ's sonship, that he is God's Son, that is so central both to who Jesus is, but also to his mission, what Jesus came to do. So much of Jesus' ministry is dedicated to proving and demonstrating that he is the Son of God. So we need to dig into and understand this crucial biblical issue of sonship. The angel told Mary, back in Luke chapter 1, he will be called the Son of the Most High. That was one of the things the angel told her as, as he announced that the Messiah was going to come from her womb. 30 years later after that announcement, Jesus is now ready to come onto the public scene. And for the first time, this sonship is not going to be a private message from the angel to Mary. It is something that will be publicly declared and something that will then be tested and proven. I'd like to look at three sections in Luke's gospel this morning. We're going to look at the story of his baptism, which is only two verses, We're going to look at the genealogy of Jesus at the end of Luke chapter 3, and then finally his temptation in the wilderness. And next week, we're going to circle back and really focus again on that temptation in the wilderness because there is much there that is going to be very fruitful for us to consider. But I want to sort of give the, the high level overview of that temptation of Jesus because it connects to the genealogy and it connects back even further to Jesus's baptism. There's a clear theme that runs through all three of these sections, and that's the idea of Christ's sonship. The big point is that Jesus provides salvation as the faithful son. That's the point of this morning's message, that Christ provides salvation for us. He wins our salvation as a faithful son. This sonship is established in his baptism It's traced through his ancestry and the genealogy, and it is proven in his triumph over temptation. So let's look at all three of those and consider that theme this morning, how Jesus wins our salvation, provides our salvation as the faithful son of God. So number one, we find Jesus is the son with whom the father is pleased. That's the point of chapter three, verse 20 and 21. Look with me in your Bibles this morning. It says, now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Just to remind you where we're at in the story, 
John the Baptist had come preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's what we see in verse 3 of chapter 3. So those who came to John to be baptized, these crowds that were coming out of the cities into the wilderness to the Jordan River, they were expressing a heart that was broken over sin. They were listening to his preaching and feeling conviction, feeling their need for forgiveness. So they were demonstrating humility and submission to God saying, yes, that's me. I'm a sinner. I need to repent. I need cleansing. I need forgiveness. And their entrance into the Jordan River as John would place them under the water and bring them back up, that symbolized their repentance. And it was by this repentance that they were preparing the way for the Messiah. Look back in verse 4. Luke records, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, that's John, prepare the way of the Lord. Their repentance was how they prepared to receive the Messiah. But this raises for us, as we read this, a question. Why then does Jesus need to be baptized? Why would Jesus need this baptism that for these people symbolized repentance and forgiveness of sin? Well, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that John had the same question. John the Baptist was very hesitant to baptize Jesus. In fact, Matthew records, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. Why do you come to me? So John is confused by this. He knew that Jesus did not need to prepare to receive the Messiah. Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus did not need to repent of his sin because he had no sin. In fact, in John's gospel, the apostle John records that when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming to be baptized, he said, behold, the Lamb of God, who does what? You guys probably know it. He takes away the sin of the world. So John knows that Jesus needs no forgiveness. Jesus needs no repentance. 1 Peter 2, verse 22 says that Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 1 John 3, 5 says, you know that he, Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So why then did Jesus need to be baptized? Let's just listen to Jesus' answer to John the Baptist. Again, from Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. It says, then John consented. He baptized him. You see, it was right for Jesus to be baptized. It was part of his mission to fulfill all righteousness. That little statement is important. And it's connected to this idea of sonship. Jesus was the perfect, obedient son. He did everything that the Father wanted him to do. Jesus did everything right. He fulfilled all righteousness. He perfectly kept the law. He perfectly worshiped his Father. And his public submission to God in being baptized was part of this entire life of submission to the Father and obedience to God. Jesus did everything that a righteous person should do, including being baptized. And by this obedience, Get this, Jesus was storing up for us a perfect treasury of righteousness, what the Puritans would call a treasury of merit, that everything God requires from us, the righteousness, the obedience, the love, the holiness, everything God requires from us, Jesus was accomplishing in his perfect life. We often think of our own baptism as as believers as a way in which we identify with Christ, that we are sharing in his death, burial, and resurrection. But in Jesus' baptism, he's identifying with us. It's interesting, Luke points out that when all the people had been baptized and Jesus also had been baptized, so while Matthew distinguishes between Jesus' baptism and the baptism of sinful man, Luke groups them together. Because he's saying Jesus is one of the people. Jesus is identifying with sinners. He is in effect saying, yeah, I'm with them. I'm with those sinful people that need forgiveness and need cleansing. I'm with those needy people. 
I am with this group of humanity that must submit to God and to his ways. And so I will humble myself to the ultimate degree, even sharing in their baptism, so that I can bring them salvation. You see, those who heard John's preaching and repented, they were being obedient to the preaching of God's word, and so was Jesus. Those people were demonstrating humility, and so was Jesus. They were identifying as the people of God who were dependent on his word, and so was Jesus. This baptism not only identified Jesus with the people he came to save, but it was also preparation for his ministry. Remember, these people are preparing to receive the work of the Messiah. That's why they're repenting and being baptized. Jesus is preparing to do his work as the Messiah. This baptism not only identified him with the people, but it served to anoint him and prepare him for his public ministry. Because look at what happens. Luke says that when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. This is interesting because it's very rare that that we can find in Scripture an example of people who are able to see the Holy Spirit. It says here, the spirit descended in bodily form like a dove. And that doesn't mean that he looked like a dove, that the form was like a dove. It means that this form, whatever it was, was descending. And the manner of descent, the way that it gracefully came down, was the same way a dove might come down and and land. So the descent is dove-like in its nature. And Jesus, or rather Luke says that Jesus was praying when this happened. Jesus has been baptized, and he's praying as the Holy Spirit descends. And you have to wonder what Jesus was praying. I wonder what he was was praising God for. I wonder what he was asking for. I have a hunch that he might have been praying these ancient words from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 64, verse 1 says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That's an ancient prayer of God's people for God, for Yahweh, to send and provide for them the salvation that they needed. Perhaps that's what Jesus was praying. We don't know for sure. Just guessing. It's a little bit of speculation, I'll admit. But that's exactly what we see happening here is that the heavens are opened and that power comes down to clothe Jesus, who is the answer to that prayer, the provision of salvation, God himself coming down to save his people. The significance of the Spirit's descent here is twofold. First, it's fulfillment of this promise, and it's part of the plan for the Messiah. Later in Isaiah, in verse 42, it says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. It sounds a lot like, with you I'm well pleased, doesn't it? God says, I have put my Spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. There's an echo here of this Old Testament promise that the servant of God would be the one in whom God delights and that God will put his spirit on him. Isaiah 61, verse 1. Now the servant speaks. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Those promises, those prophecies are fulfilled here as Jesus is empowered by the Holy Spirit, as he is identified as the servant of God, the one who comes to do the Father's will. And in order to do the Father's will, in order for Jesus to fulfill this mission and do his job, he's going to need divine power. Yes, Jesus is the Son of God in the sense that he is fully divine. He is eternal God who added in human nature. He took on flesh. But in doing that, Philippians chapter 2 tells us that Jesus set aside his glory, that he emptied himself. Not that he stopped being God in any sense, but he willingly surrendered the, the free and voluntary use of his divine power. It's, this is a, a crass illustration. I hope that it's not blasphemous, but imagine a father who's playing basketball with his two-year-old son in the living room on the little Nerf hoop. So he gets on his knees and he only uses his left hand. Now he's still his dad. He's still 6'2". He still weighs 200 pounds, but he's willingly limiting himself to accommodate himself to the needs of his little child. 
when Jesus took on flesh, he never stopped being God. He never stopped having infinite power as God, but he humbled himself. He did a lot more than get on his knees. He took on flesh. And so as Jesus comes in his humanity to be our savior, in order for him to do all the things God desired him to do, he had to be empowered with the Holy Spirit. In order for him to preach, to perform miracles, to cast out demons, he needed the Spirit's power. And so this phenomenon of the Spirit coming down, it confirms that he is the Messiah, but it also clothes him with the power that he will need to do the will of the Father. And I don't think this means Jesus didn't have the Spirit before this. This is a symbol. This is simply a public demonstration of this reality. The one that John said would baptize them with the Spirit is here shown to possess the fullness of the Spirit. But all this is really building to an even more explicit divine declaration that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah. Because after the Spirit descends on him like a dove, verse 22 tells us that next a voice came from heaven You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now in the Greek language in which Luke is writing, I know we have a couple English lit majors and some grad students in our midst, this is grammatically the emphasis of the entire sentence. All the other clauses are subordinate to this clause. So the whole argument has been building, and the way Luke is telling the story, this is the mic drop moment. Yes, he's been baptized and the spirit came down, but now he gets to the punchline. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. It's interesting. Luke is very brief in his telling of the story. He leaves out some of the details. We have to go to Matthew and and John's gospel and Mark's gospel to sort of fill in all the gaps because Luke is really just focused on this part, this statement from heaven. His interest centers on the divine declaration. You are my son, my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. I think it's important here what God doesn't say. Notice he doesn't say, I forgive you. All these other people are being baptized to demonstrate their repentance, a repentance that is seeking forgiveness of sin. So you might expect if Jesus was sinful for the father to say, your sins are forgiven. That's not what he says. No, he needs no forgiveness. And as Jesus comes up out of the water, he says, you're my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Notice he also doesn't say, today you have become my son. There's no hint of adoptionism here. That's an old heresy. It's a false teaching that says Jesus became God's son in some sense at this point. No, the, even the grammar of it, the, the verb tense here indicates that this is who Jesus is, who he always has been, and who he always will be. As one preacher puts it, Jesus was younger than his mama, and just as old as his daddy. That's a simple way to put it, but he has always been the son of God. Jesus is the eternal son with whom the father has always enjoyed perfect fellowship, mutual delight. The father is pleased with the son. This language of sonship is important. There's two cases in the Old Testament where God identifies someone as his son. The first Uh, not chronologically, but the first that we'll look at, is referring to the king of Israel in the second psalm. And the king of Israel in Psalm 2 is is seen to be the royal representative of the nation, and it's a messianic king there in Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verse 7 through 8, says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession." So ancient Israel understood sonship. To be the son of God was connected with being the king of Israel and being the Messiah. Earlier than that, in Exodus chapter 4, the Old Testament uses this title of God's son with reference to the nation Israel. Remember what Moses said to Pharaoh. He goes into Pharaoh's courtroom and he's told by God to say, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. So there's these two sort of images of kingship, 
but also national Israel. And so as the voice of God thunders from heaven at Jesus' baptism, we hear the echo of these ancient passages. And we see how these, these images, they find their resolution in Jesus. Here's how it works. Israel had many kings. A lot of them were bad, but they even had some good kings. Kings like David and Josiah, but even Israel's best kings ultimately failed. They sinned, and then they died. Jesus is the Christ, the ultimate king, to whom Psalm 2 will finally and fully apply. He will succeed where those kings failed. Israel as a nation had also failed. They had failed to fulfill their calling. They had failed to be a light to the nations. They had failed to show the glory of God to the world. They had failed to obey the law. They had broken God's covenant, forfeited blessings, earned many curses, but Jesus would be the faithful Israelite who will succeed where the nation had stumbled. He would be the representative for the nation and fulfill God's plan for them. So this pronouncement of you are my son, it says something about his divine nature. Yes, that he is one with the Father. But it also speaks to his messianic mission. God is well pleased with Jesus because he will be a better king than David. Because he will be more faithful than Israel. Because he will succeed where everyone who came before him had failed. And the baptism is his anointing for this mission, his consecration as the servant of God, and the public declaration that he is the ultimate son, the faithful son with whom the Father is well pleased. So in his baptism, we see first and foremost that Jesus is the son with whom the Father is well pleased. But I want to move on past this because next, Luke jumps right into this big genealogy. And from this, we learn, number two, that Jesus is the son who represents us as the second Adam. Jesus is the faithful son, and he represents us as a second Adam. We won't take time to read the whole genealogy, but it starts in verse 23. It says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. And then it traces this ancestry past Joseph. All the way back, we see a few notable names here. We see King David in this genealogy. We see Judah and his father Jacob and his father Isaac and his father Abraham anchoring Jesus in this Abrahamic line. But then it goes all the way back to Adam. Look at verse 38. The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. The question that this brings up is why would Luke interrupt the story and at this point jump back and start sharing this genealogy? Matthew also has a genealogy, but he starts off with it. He starts off in chapter 1, verse 1 with the genealogy of Jesus. Why would Luke start telling the story and then sort of press pause on the narrative and give us this big Ancestry.com you know, PDF report of Jesus' heritage? Why would he do that? Well, there's a number of valuable insights in this genealogy. Yes, Jesus is the son of David, so he has a legal right to the throne of Israel. Yes, Jesus is the son of Abraham, so he is rightly able to represent Israel. But Luke goes further back to show that Jesus is the son of Adam and that Jesus is the son of God. The voice says at his baptism, you are my son. And Luke says his genealogy also shows that he is the son of God. He connects Jesus to Adam. Adam, if we look at this genealogy, has no earthly father. He has no natural source. Adam is the special creation of God. And so Adam is considered the son of God in a special sense. And Adam, if we know our Old Testament, he represented not just Israel, He represented the entire human race, and Jesus is coming to do that as well. In the Greek text, the word son is actually not included for most of this genealogy. It starts off with Jesus is the son of, and it says supposedly Joseph. We know he was born of a virgin. Joseph had nothing to do with it. But the little word son actually never appears again in the rest of the genealogy, which makes Jesus the son of dot, 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 ultimately God. That's Luke's point. 
And in tracing this back to Adam, back to God, Luke establishes Jesus is the son of God in a special sense, like Adam. He has no human father like Adam. He, like Adam before the fall, is sinless. And so he, like Adam, is able to represent the human race. Jesus is not just Israel's Messiah. Luke wants us to know that salvation in Jesus is for everyone. Remember, Luke is a Gentile. Theophilus, who was the first recipient of this book, is also a Gentile. Luke is excited to tell us, many of whom, most of whom are Gentiles, that Jesus is a savior for the world, not just for the Jews only. Jesus came and his mission is to be the truer and better son of God who will succeed where Adam failed. Because the bottom line is, Adam represented you and me and he sinned. He didn't pass the test. He ate from the tree that God said, do not eat. And at that moment, he sinned. And he plunged the whole creation and the human race under the curse. That's bad news. And the bad news is that everyone since born from Adam's seed inherits that sinful nature. You were born a sinner. I was born a sinner. It's because of what Adam did. Only Jesus can undo that curse. Romans chapter 5, verse 14 says that Adam was a type, you could say a prototype, of the one who was to come. He was a forerunner, in a sense, of Jesus. Romans 5, 18 and 19 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Who is the one man? Who is the one man through whose obedience many, including us, can be made righteous? It's Jesus Christ. He is the truer and the better Adam. He is the second Adam, the final Adam. 2 Corinthians 15.21 says, For as by a man, namely Adam, came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You see, Luke wants us to understand that Jesus is the Son of God, the second Adam, who comes to succeed where the first Adam fails. In order to represent us, Jesus must be like Adam, the son of God. But he also needs to be the son of man. 25 times, I believe, in the rest of this gospel, Jesus will be referred to as the son of man, which touches on his humanity. He is one of us and therefore able to represent us. So it brings up a question. Adam was an unfaithful son, wasn't he? Adam didn't trust his father, and he disobeyed God's law. But what about Jesus? Will he succeed where Adam failed? Well, that's the question that launches us into the story at the beginning of chapter 4 and the temptation of Jesus. So the baptism, we see Jesus declared to be the faithful son with whom the father is pleased. In the genealogy, we see that he is the second Adam who represents us. And then number three, our third point this morning. In chapter 4, 1 through 13, we find that Jesus is the son who faithfully passes the test. He faithfully passes the test. Look in chapter 4, verse 1. Luke jumps back into the story. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, we know that's because of what happened at his baptism, he returned from the Jordan that's where he had been baptized. So Luke's tying this back in to that story in chapter 3. So full of the Holy Spirit, he returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. 
And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Jesus is the faithful son who passes the test. We see here that that he is providentially placed in the wilderness. It says that Jesus is full of the spirit, chapter 4, verse 1, and is led by the spirit into the wilderness. This isn't Jesus being caught off guard. This isn't the devil somehow interfering. This is Jesus entering into the ring. And he knows exactly what's going to happen. He's going to face his opponent. It's no accident. God is setting up this confrontation. Because what happened in the garden where Adam sinned and failed, what happened in the wilderness where Israel wandered for 40 years and stumbled and sinned, that needed to be undone. And that was Jesus' mission. We see here that Jesus is physically empty. He's eaten nothing for 40 days. But he is spiritually full. And now comes the time for the test. And just as heaven had opened and poured out the Spirit and the Father's blessing, now in the wilderness, hell unleashes its deceitful poison as Satan comes to tempt him. Satan comes attempting to ruin God's plan. He knows that Jesus has a mission. He knows that Jesus has come to save. And Satan wants to undo that. Satan wants to to derail that redemptive plan. So the voice from heaven had said, you are my son, and with you I am well pleased. And now the voice of the serpent whispers, are you really the son? Are you really the son of God? And are you sure that your father is pleased with you? If your father is pleased with you, why are you so hungry? If you're really the son of God, why aren't you ruling over the nations? If you're really the son of God, why are you anonymous and no one knows? We can change all that. The serpent comes attacking his relationship with his father, attacking his trust in the word of God, seeking to get him to fail, just like Israel had and just like Adam had before him. It's interesting here, Satan is not named, he's merely described as the devil, diabolos in the Greek language, which means accuser or slanderer. He comes with twisted words that distort the truth. He says two times to Jesus, if you are the son of God, undermining the truthfulness of what God had said, undermining God's word, and he attempts to get Jesus to compromise his mission. You see, this faithful son had a duty to discharge, and Satan wants to get him off track. There's three temptations recorded for us, and the first seems fairly harmless. He says, if you're the son of God, verse 3, command this stone to become bread. Jesus, why don't you make yourself something to eat? You might say, well, why is this a problem? It's not sin to eat food. Jesus eats food often throughout his life. He shares meals with his disciples on more than one occasion. But why was this a problem? It's a problem because of this. Who was it who had led Jesus into the wilderness where there was no food for him to eat? God had. He had been led there by the Spirit, which means Jesus was where his Father wanted him to be. For Jesus to use his power to create food for himself would have been to distrust his father's leading. It would have been to distrust his father's provision. For Jesus to use his divine power to serve his own needs would have been the opposite reason of why God had given him the power of the Holy Spirit. That power had been given to him to meet the needs of sinners, to preach and to minister and to do miracles so that he could bring our salvation to co-opt that power and use it for himself would have been getting Jesus to adopt a different mission than the one his father had given him. His strategy was to get Jesus to listen to his flesh, not listen to his father, to follow his stomach instead of following the spirit. 
But unlike Adam, who ate when he wasn't supposed to, and unlike the children of Israel, who complained when they were hungry in the wilderness, Jesus quotes scripture, verse 4, and refuses. Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. His response is, Satan, listen, there's way bigger stuff going on here than just my need for food, and I'm going to trust my father's word. I'm going to trust my father's timing. I'm going to trust my father's provision. Although Jesus' hunger was intense, and although his needs were real, he is the faithful son, and he succeeds where Adam failed. The second temptation ramps up quite a bit in verse 5. The devil takes him up and shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he offers, in verse 6, their authority and their glory. He says, this is all mine, and I will give it to you. Now, this is tricky because the father had promised to give the son all the kingdoms of the earth. That's what Psalm 2 says. Just like food, this is a legitimate need. It is a legitimate inheritance for Jesus. It is rightfully his. In addition, Satan is not lying when he says he has the power to give all this to Jesus. John chapter 12 calls Satan the ruler of this world. Ephesians chapter 2 calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. 2 Corinthians 4 calls Satan the god of this world. 1 John 5.19 says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Satan goes, I have access to all of this, and it can be yours. What's the catch? Well, this is a legitimate offer. It's a legitimate prize. It's rightfully Christ's. It's something Jesus deserves, something he's been promised. But here's the catch. There's a compromise. In order to get this, all Jesus has to do is bow to Satan. If he will bow in worship to the devil, he will receive it all now. He can bow and receive it now. And what makes that so appealing is that in doing this, he won't have to submit to the Father's plan. You see, the Father was going to give Jesus all of this as well. He was going to give Jesus glory. He was going to give Jesus the throne and the kingdom. But the Father would first send his Son into a world that would reject him. And this plan involved humiliation. It involved suffering. It involved an agonizing death. It involved propitiation on the cross. It involved Jesus paying for our sins, suffering under the wrath of the Father. Satan was whispering that if Jesus is really the Son of God, he shouldn't have to go through all that. If he's really the Son of God, he shouldn't have to be some obscure carpenter. He should be on the throne. And he's saying, listen, Jesus, you can have the crown and bypass the cross. Again, Jesus shoots it down by quoting the word of God, verse 8. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. When Jesus says it is written, he refers to the authoritative and conclusive power and truthfulness of Scripture. And Jesus is loyal to God and to his word. He knows that no glory is so great that it's worth turning from God. He knows that no suffering is so awful that it would justify or excuse idolatry. Jesus is the faithful son. Jesus is the second Adam, and he passes the test. Jesus is passing the test. But Satan's not done. There's a third temptation. And it takes us back to the scene of the temple where so much of Luke's gospel has been set. Look in verse 9. He takes Jesus to Jerusalem, sets him on the pinnacle of the temple, at this high corner on the wall, and he says to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. And then apparently Satan, he's pretty shrewd. He's no dummy. He's, he recognizes, okay, Jesus keeps quoting scripture. He keeps going back to what the Bible says. So he decides, well, I'm going to do the same thing. And Satan says, I can quote scripture too, verse 10. He says, for it is written. And he makes reference to Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. The temptation here for Jesus is to prove that he is the Son of God and to vindicate himself. Satan is saying, if you are really the Son of God, then people should know. Why are you out here in obscurity in the wilderness? Demonstrate your glory. Jump off. He will rescue you. He will save you. And you can avoid a life of humiliation. 
You should glorify yourself right now, Jesus, rather than waiting and trusting for your Father to glorify you. Because he's going to put you through all that suffering first. Don't trust your Father's timing. You should seize the moment yourself. But Jesus knows that Satan's deadly questions are nothing more than inviting doubt, inviting him to deviate from the Father's plan. And the faithful son is resolute. He is not like Adam, crumbling under pressure, compromising, doubting God's word. He's not like Israel, failing to remember the promises of God. Jesus answered him, verse 12, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He says, yes, Satan, you may be quoting scripture, but you're using it wrongly. And we should not be presumptuous and test the Lord our God. God doesn't play those sorts of games. He's not in a position, you're in no position to force him to prove himself like that. That's not how this works. Jesus is a faithful son and he passes the test. So verse 13 says, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This won't be the last time Jesus faces temptation. But every temptation after this will also result in Satan's defeat. Jesus will be tempted again in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus will pass the test. Jesus will be tempted on the cross as people mock him and say, if you're really the son of God, then get down off the cross and save yourself. Jesus will pass that test as well. In fact, Jesus will go all the way into the grave and overcome death itself. Jesus will ultimately triumph over all. Hebrews 4.15 says that he in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus passed the test. That's good news for you and for me this morning, that unlike Israel who failed over and over again in the wilderness, Jesus was faithful. Unlike Adam who made a fatal choice and disbelieved the word of God in the garden, Jesus obeyed his father. And unlike you, and unlike me, Jesus is righteous. Jesus is the faithful son, and Jesus passed the test. We see Christ's sonship declared at his baptism, traced throughout history in the genealogy, and proven in his triumph over temptation in the wilderness. And in doing so, Jesus wins our salvation as the faithful son. And therefore, we must learn to see him as the faithful son. This is the hook for the whole message this morning. Some of you might, if you've been struggling to track with me, I want you to catch this part. You might say, okay, all this is great. Jesus is the son of God. I kind of already thought that before I came here. So how does that really help me? You might say, that's all really interesting to you know, connect it to the Old Testament and Psalms and Adam and Israel and Isaiah's prophecies, and that's all Christology. That's all these doctrinal things, and that's really interesting to understand more about Jesus, but what does that have to do with my daily life? Listen, if you're asking the question, what does Christ's faithfulness as the Son of God have to do with my daily life? The answer is Everything. It has everything to do with your salvation, everything to do with your daily life, that Jesus is the faithful son who has won our salvation by his perfect obedience to the Father. That has everything to do with your daily life. It means this, if Jesus is the faithful son who wins our salvation, then it frees you from the burden of performance. If our salvation depends on Christ's perfect obedience and his faithfulness, that means it doesn't depend on your perfect obedience and your perfect faithfulness. Because there's not a one of us in the room that can stand on our own two feet and say, I have kept God's law. I have made myself clean. I have done everything that is required to be counted righteous in the courtroom of God. None of us can say that. We inherit a sinful nature from our first father, Adam, and we live a life of daily sin. We don't do the things that we should do, and we do the things God tells us not to do. We have never once loved him as we ought. We have never perfectly obeyed him as we ought. We are sinners, but since Jesus is not a sinner, 
Since he is the faithful son who wins that statement of approval, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased, that verdict can be shared with us. Because of Jesus, God can look on you, sinner. If you believe in his gospel, he will look on you and say, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. And with you, I am well pleased. This has everything to do with our daily life. Your salvation does not depend on your righteousness. It depends on his. You see, there are many, many people in the world today who try in vain to earn some sort of approval from God, to somehow be good enough, to try hard enough, to be better than the other people, thinking that maybe God will give us his approval if we can just clear the bar. But listen, this approval that you are seeking from God, it can only be found in Christ. It can only be found in Christ. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 3.9 that he's forsaken everything in order to be found in Christ. And Paul says, here's what that means, to be found in Christ. It means not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Listen, if you want to be approved of by God, you must be righteous. Yes, but the only way you can be righteous is through faith in Christ. It is what what scholars often call an alien righteousness, meaning it comes from outside of us. It comes from somewhere else. We often understand what happens at the cross is Jesus pays our debt. You and I were way in the red. We owed God more than we could ever repay. And yes, on the cross, Jesus atones for our debt and he brings us back to to flush. But then we're still just, we have zero in the bank account. But there's more that happens. This beautiful trade-off that happens is our sin is given to Christ. He pays for it on the cross. But also his righteousness is given to us. This infinite amount of perfect righteousness that we could never earn or produce is granted to us. It's given to us through faith. When you believe in the promise of Christ, all of his righteousness is yours. And the Father looks upon you as righteous. That's what Paul means when he says, I have a righteousness not of my own that comes from obeying the law. It's a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. Listen, since Jesus is the faithful son who wins our salvation, that frees us from the burden of performance, thinking that we have to earn our salvation. Not only that, since Jesus is the faithful son who wins our salvation, we too can become sons and daughters of God. I love what John writes in John chapter 1, verse 12, that to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. There are some who say that every person is a child of God. That's not true. It's only those who have been adopted into the family. Only those who believe, only those who receive Christ and place their faith in him are counted as part of the family. And because Jesus is the faithful son, we can become sons and daughters. This work of Christ, the son of God, in his mission, in his righteous life, in his sacrificial death, and in his victorious resurrection, Jesus elevates us to this glorious status so that we too can be called sons and daughters of God. Romans 8.29 says this is God's plan, that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Did you catch that? The firstborn Jesus will always be unique, but he's the firstborn among many brothers. God's plan is to call out men and women, boys and girls, and make them his sons and daughters. And he does it through the work of Christ. Since Jesus is the faithful son, we don't have to perform. We can be elevated to this status of sons and daughters. And since Jesus is the faithful son who wins our salvation, What that means, how this affects your daily life, my daily life, is that our only boast, our only confidence must be in Christ. We boast in him alone. 
1 Corinthians 1.30 says, Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. You know who it is in the room today that can, that can confidently boast and say, I have made myself righteous. I have earned God's approval. I am better than those other people in the world who are enslaved to their sin and spiritually blind. None of us can say that. Those who boast today, those who rejoice in salvation, we must acknowledge it is all Christ, it is only Christ. It is all of Christ and it is only through Christ. It is all of grace and it is only by grace. So we boast, we rejoice, we celebrate and our confidence is in him. It's not in us. This truth that Jesus wins our salvation as the faithful son, it has everything to do with our daily life. It changes how we fight sin. It changes how we think about our salvation. It changes our understanding of our identity, who we are before God. It is our hope and our confidence that moves us to rejoice and boast in him. Friends, this is good news. It is good news for us that Jesus is the faithful son who wins our salvation. The father declared it at his baptism. It's proven out in the genealogy, and it was tested and shown to be true in Christ's triumph over temptation in the wilderness. He's the faithful son who wins our salvation. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? I hope you do. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we rejoice and boast in you alone today. You are the only Savior. You are righteous. You are faithful. You perfectly fulfilled your Father's will. And because of that, and only because of that, we can be saved. Lord, I thank you for the many in this room who have placed their faith in Jesus and have been adopted into the family, elevated to this glorious status of sons and daughters of God. I pray that any in the room who don't know you, for those who may still be trying to earn their own salvation, those who may be trying to be righteous and pass the test on their own, I pray that you would help them see the futility of that thinking. I pray that they would recognize that it's too late for them. They've already sinned. They've already failed the test. And their only hope for salvation is if Christ will be their righteousness, if Christ will be their savior. I pray that today they would shift their faith from their own efforts, shift their faith away from their own understanding, shift their faith away from their own goodness. I pray that they would place their faith in Christ and in him alone. Lord, may we always rejoice that as those who are now sons and daughters of God, may we always rejoice in Christ and boast in him. We praise you, Lord Jesus, and thank you for your faithfulness, your suffering, your humility, the great love you have shown us in coming to walk in our shoes and represent us and win our salvation as the faithful son. Amen.